Welcome to Gogorin, the Eurozine podcast with authors and editors of culture journals from throughout Europe and beyond. Eurozine is an online magazine and a network of 90 partners. Journals, magazines and associates from Belgium to Belarus, from Norway to Bulgaria, reflecting on culture, analyzing politics and bringing diverse voices to a joint conversation. I am Editor-in-Chief Reka Kingapa, and today I'm talking with our recurring author, Aza-based culture critic and art curator Katarina Botanova, herself a native of Kyiv. In this episode, published on the first anniversary of Russia's full-scale attack on Ukraine, we discuss victimhood and agency, art in wartime, the roles of cultural creators, the ones they choose and the ones they refuse. You'll find a link in the show notes to Katarina Botanova's articles in Eurozine. This podcast episode also has an extended version with bonus material available only to our patrons. You can become a patron by pledging as little as five euros a month or more for even more giveaways and exclusive content on patreon.com slash Eurozine. Eurozine has been offering quality journalism for free for over two decades. And now we need our readers and listeners help to muddle through a very tough time in culture and publishing. If you are wishing to help a quality online magazine sustain its work for a European public sphere, you can find all the relevant information on eurozine.com support. Thank you, and let's get into it. Very welcome, Katerina. This is our first time actually talking with each other and hearing each other's voices, even though we've had a publishing relationship for a couple of years. I'm very happy to meet you auditively. Same here, absolutely. Thanks for taking the time. And today we will be talking about two of your articles, The Art of Misunderstanding, which was published on the 2nd of January this year. So this is sort of a programmatic piece in a sense also for Eurozine, about how Ukrainian artists and cultural activists are faced with pressures from their international peers. And we will be talking also about your beautifully written article from last May titled Defined by Silence. Both of these are linked in the show notes for everyone to read. This one is about the Ukrainian art that was destroyed and the art that never happened because of the war. Let's start with the art of misunderstanding, which is a bit more personal than what I know from you and way more programmatic or, well, maybe political is not the right expression because it's not that you have ever shied away from the politics of art and cultural production, but more, say, directly focused on how art is being treated, especially in the fields of financing. You point out point blank that there is a pervasive demand toward Ukrainian cultural activists and practitioners to be put in a dialogue with others with the purpose of reconciliation. And you say this is a big misunderstanding. Please explain this to the readers and a little bit also to me, why viewing art as a form of reconciliation is so mistaken. Because it is a commonplace, sort of. And I think a lot of people have this notion in their heads that art is for the sake of tolerance and dialogue. So what's wrong with that? 
Thank you, Rebecca, for the question. And thank you very much for the invitation. It's a big pleasure and big honor to be speaking to you and to be speaking to yours in podcast. The idea of the, the article for the Art of Misunderstanding literally came from not just my own experience, but sort of a collected experience of many of my colleagues. So in a way, it is a very personal article because it comes from very sort of hands-on-the-ground experience probably sounds a bit paradoxically, but it's a cry in the midst of the war to the very well-wishing and well-meaning people just to stop pushing us where we don't want to go. And, and it sounds yeah funny, like why would that happen? But this experience of being pushed to the conversations, pushed to interactions that for the people who are being pushed seems so more than impossible just sort of absolutely out of question. So this dilemma, in a way, brought me to the need of talking about how this position of power, when somebody can be pushing or you know, conveying something to do something that the other one doesn't want to do, where does this power come from? And how this well-wishing intention can come together with basically what's a violence, right? If you push the other person to do what the person doesn't want to do, that's a very violent act. And um, that brought me to my long-time interest and sort of professional dedication, which I use in other types of my yeah, professional experience, which is a theory of knowledge and intellectual history. Because when we talk about the position of power, the position of power is always constructed by knowledge, which allows the person to hold the position of power. What... The war in Ukraine is showing nowadays is that the aggression and the act of aggression in the war in Ukraine is not only from the Russian side. I mean, on the Russian side, it's happening on at least two levels, on the physical level, on the physical military um, aggression onto the land and to people, but of course also the, the epistemological aggression. The notion which is behind this war of complete uh, non-existence of Ukrainian people, so the wish to not to subjugate, but basically to erase them. But on the other side, there is this also act of aggression on the side of what we can call the collective West, which is sort of still there. The notion that somehow the war can be seen from outside, sort of from bird's view, and from the outside position, the side in this war can be basically infantilized. As an adult, you look at the two children fighting, and you say, look, stop children, stop fighting. As if the war can be stopped like this, just two sides stopping doing what they're doing, dropping it, and then there is peace. So the problem with reconciliation is that the reconciliation is an inside act. There should be an inside wish, possibility, and allowance to reconciliate with someone or with something. The same way as the war is a very much inside act, because for people who are inside the war, for Ukrainians that are inside the war, the idea that you can just stop it is a nonsense. I mean, you cannot stop the murder by saying stop. You can stop the murder only by stopping the murderer. And the vicious loop of the unreflected power, which has a certain background, of course, I mean, the collective West didn't get this power yesterday, right? It's a long build knowledge system, which was shaken a little bit to a certain extent through decolonial movements. But as we see now, it's still pretty much there in place. That's why very often I at least call this war in Ukraine a twofold war, because unfortunately, Ukrainians have to fight on two fronts, on the physical front with Russia and on a knowledge front 
predominantly with collective waste. This is something that we talked briefly also about last year regarding your article defining silence. I think on my part back then that was more misunderstanding, but very much in this direction. It has long been on my mind that there are certain expectations of victimhood. First of all, or the notion of being a victim has been problematized, and rightfully so. We view people who suffer and survive, or oftentimes don't survive, aggression of all sorts. Now we call them survivors, or we want to view them as people with their own individual agency, which is in some cases mistaken. In the case of Ukraine, it is definitely true. And I think this really showed, especially in the early days when basically the international community was busy being awed by the fact that Ukrainian people dared to actually resist, which most of the international community did not expect, which is also very telling. Now, that's a problem in its own. But so there are certain expectations towards the victim or the one who suffers aggression. For instance, as you say, engaging in dialogue. And there's this whole, I'm not even sure it's an ideology as much as these seem to me like cultural reflexes to expect the victim to go there and then get involved in sensitivity training and also to act like they have something to learn in a procedure like this. I don't want to draw very private and personal parallels with everyday situations, but we do see this also in attempts at mediation, for instance, mediation between an abuser and the person they abused. The person who was abused is expected to make concessions and admit to some faults. It's a very problematic expectation. And how I understand your text, a very extreme version of this is being expected of Ukrainians right now, as if they had the task to, I don't know, maybe not turn the other cheek, but somewhere along those lines, right? I do have an issue with the notion of victim and victimhood, because the notion of victimhood, although it has the productive side of pointing at the abuser and aggressor, right, because there's, if there's a victim, there should be an abuser. But the other side of this coin is that victim is being seen as some kind of a passive, voiceless object. It's been abused and victimized and now it has to do something with this experience, for example, through mediation. And I think what's happening in Ukraine nowadays since uh, February last year is uh, what's called resistance. And resistance is the act of reclaiming power back, is the act of emancipation and a statement that, yeah, there was aggression against us, but we do not succumb to the notion of a passive victim. We're not victims, we are resistance fighters. And in this sense, and that's what I also mentioned in my article briefly, other emancipation discourses, like the feminine discourse or the decolonial discourse, they come very handy because this is the experience of emancipation into the agency, into having our own voice, fighting for a space where the experiences on our side can be told in the way, not how the hypothetical mediator wants us to say, 
and moreover not the way the aggressor the abuser wants us to say it but the way how they are being experienced and lived and seen from inside by in ukrainian case of the collective us which consists from many 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 various voices and i think this um, very now well known and widely used and i'm very happy for it because i think it's a great statement nothing about us without us which came from a feminist discourse this is something which is being very strongly asserted on the ukrainian side whoever you are who wants us to speak about what is happening during the war in the variety experiences from the completely unspeakable experiences that people uh went through in the occupied and liberated territories and people are probably still going through unfortunately and still occupied territories to something different but still very hard to talk to the people who are living in Ukraine now not on occupied territories but still suffering from the attacks from the disconnection and losing the close and loved ones and you know you can continue there but this inner vision this inside connected position i think this is something which art is doing and showing and articulating nowadays i think it's very important to see how the artists in ukraine see themselves through their work but also quite often they're articulated you know through what they say what they write what they come up in an interview documentary makers they feel an inner obligation to document to show the experiences and feelings and the grief and the care and the loss in a sense of community and many other things that are happening here and now because for ukraine the notion that the history can be over never happened and i think this is a bit more <laughs> relevant to a, to a um, cultural and political spaces a bit wider than ukraine women I mean, to eastern europe at least the history never stopped every day things are so intense and the history is happening every day every day something is happening which changes the lives and the course of the tomorrow and this feeling being inside the change this feeling being you know here and now and the value of the moment and its importance and this inner dedication not to let it go even if it's immensely painful not to forget to keep it and to keep this memory line every day that is also an act of resistance and in the wider framework of the art world it's definitely an act of resistance when the artwork is not something which can be objectified and sort of separated from the artist and then put in a different context of a gallery or museum and just hang there then the art is something which is deeply connected to the daily experience and when the objective position you know i cannot write about it i cannot show it yet you know i need my time this is also not happening now the objective position is not possible mediation is not possible only the connection and being true and honest with yourself and with what's happening is possible and that's why the answer to any possible mediation is like no we don't agree even to the position of a mediator but we agree to the position of a solidarity step in and find your own way of resistance together with us yeah what you point out in this article is also that there is a negotiation between this determined work and between the very obvious need to maintain western attention we can't really act like 
this wasn't necessary simply because basically survival right now depends on many forms of Western attention. I don't want to minimize Ukraine's own agency here, but in terms of support and international interest, I think there's a clear need. And yet you see that that cultural actors don't want to play by the usual script to try and maintain attention in these situations. Yeah, absolutely. I unfortunately do agree with you. And I think, again, especially last year, and probably I'm repeating myself, but we also have to remember that the war didn't start on February 24, 2022. The war started in uh, March of 2014 with a walk-in and annexation of Crimea and everything which went out of that and basically never stopped. And the, the full-scale invasion just kind of exacerbated everything. The emancipatory and resistance activities didn't start one year ago. Coming back to the script, yeah, unfortunately, the previous years didn't influence that script in a radical way. And what's happening ever since the full-scale invasion, at least on the side of uh, Ukrainian cultural workers, right? Let's create a <laughs> collective pool of people uh, connected to the cultural field one way or another, artists, um, you know, writers, intellectuals, historians, many, many people. I think I wouldn't be exaggerating if I say that this, the collective effort is really 100% concentrated on changing that script. You know, what I was writing in the first article, which came out in, I think, in April, which is kind of a long time ago, about the art that didn't happen. This was reiterated several times by one of Ukrainian artists, Aleptina Kahidze, who started talking and showing through her art about the stolen time. She's saying that the Russia stole time from us because what we could have been doing, we cannot do. What we wanted to do, we're not doing. On the other side, for example, Russian artists, they are doing what they're doing. They're not limited by this pressure of a stolen time. What are we doing in this time instead of doing what we wanted to be doing or planned to be doing? We're basically talking repeatedly in multiple voices and in different forms Again, about the fact that the script, the collective West is telling us, you know, how to behave and how to reconcile and how to make peace without any regard to what the price of this peace would be. And that the price is in human lives and in lost homes and in many other losses, that this script is not viable anymore. And in this sense, I think it's important because it's not only Ukrainian story. Because it's not only the war in Ukraine which is being treated like this. Many other wars and conflicts around the globe, outside of the boundaries of the collective West, are being treated the same way when the arbitrator comes and tells what to do and how to talk about it. And maybe what's important about this resistance movement in Ukraine today is because it's happening in Europe. And it's such a close proximity, physical proximity, and also geopolitical proximity to European Union, that this notion of the script written elsewhere and imposed on other people has a higher chance to be shaken and maybe put aside once and for all, finally. And that is something which will bring a lot of change to the other people around the globe. Yeah, you point out that a feminist vocabulary is crucial in addressing this problem. And you also write that there is another effective, though much less common approach that Ukrainian cultural activists have used in their artistic works and in public discussions. 
and it entails entering the pacifist discourse, but instead of accepting forced dialogue or compulsive reconciliation, choosing disagreement. So how does, in effect, this disagreement work in a situation where you have to retain your position as a speaker, but you don't play along the rules? What does it look like in practice? In practice, I think it looks very close to this now very famous, I would say, talk between Vienna-based Ukrainian writer Tanya Malarchuk and the journalist Jakob Ockstein, right, if I'm not mistaken, which became so famous that I've been now reading the articles written about that talk, the articles analyzing the argument of Tanya in that talk. Because she is a German-speaking, Vienna-based Ukrainian writer, was faced with a flow of the most stereotypical and the most sort of propaganda-based arguments about this war. They were just repeating all the Russian propaganda and cliché about Ukraine and the origins of the war and everything else. And she just sat there and she fought. Argument by argument, statement by statement. I know that personally it took her quite a lot of energy, but it did become a case. It did become a case and maybe it didn't change the overall discourse in the German-speaking media, but it created a crack. So creating those cracks whenever possible, standing up to situations that are extremely uncomfortable because then you're sitting there and have to face uh, the flow of absolutely outrageous stereotypes and, and cliches. I must tell you from the personal experience, the first feeling is like, I don't want to do that. This is like standing on a public podium and defending that, you know, as a woman, I don't have to spend my life in the kitchen. I mean, come on, we don't talk about it anymore, right? We're, we're past it. We're talking about something else now, but no, in the discussion about the Ukrainian war and Ukrainian position, Ukrainian speakers are very often put on the position yeah, of the woman who has to fight for her right to you know, have a job and equal pay and not spend her life with children and banal and very, very low level argument. And it takes a lot of, yeah, I think patience and, and you know, some of my colleagues, a lot of also courage not to sort of succumb to that talk and or give up on it or just refuse from the very beginning but understand that okay if we have to discuss on this level i'll go down and i will start on your level but then we will come to a different kind of talk where we don't have to fight about emancipation where we don't have to fight for our voice because we have this voice we're not passive subjects or puppets created by someone else where people with a history with a huge inner solidarity with a very complex knot of past and present and with a very clear wish for the future. I think that's how it's happening. And unfortunately, I think that's how it will still happen for quite some time. The funny memory that I was sharing with a friend recently that when Maidan was happening a year ago, the end of 2013, beginning of 2014, there was a bit of a similar debate in the Western media. Like, yeah, is it like a US kind of instigated plot? Uh, what is happening there? And me then, almost 10 years younger, I was so surprised. I said, like, but it's not possible. I mean, look around. All the people who are talking and who have a voice and who have a level of respect in Western media, you know, the artists, the writers and intellectuals, you know, guys that you've been published for years, also the younger generation that you don't know, but everybody who is publicly speaking, speaking in one voice, saying, this is our decision, this is our choice, we're fighting. How is it possible that such a strong and such a complex but still very much unanimous voice is not being heard? And now, nine years later, 
we see that the power of not hearing the voices, even if they're strong and unanimous, is kind of really strong in the West. Yeah, I'm sorry for bringing this up, but I just can't hold myself back. So last May, just a few days after we published you, I went to a Europe Day event where a young Ukrainian artist was asked by a Dutch journalist whether Ukrainian art is part of European art. And some of us in the room just lost our minds. Like, sincerely, you said those things out of your head with your mouth? You know, this kind of reaction. And we watched in awe as this artist, who was duly but very upset by this question, took the energy to go through this, walk them through this, and explain how, obviously, Ukrainian art is part of European art not going into as much detail as I would about basics of geography, but also so much more. And then sort of turned it into a direction of how much does Europe pay attention to everyone outside of its economic center. I was spectacular. I have to link the discussion here below, also because I don't want to butcher a couple of names here. But this is what you explain reminds me of. I would very much allow for some like straight up anger and outrage in these situations. But of course, I'm in a different situation. I'm only explaining what's happening in Hungary and nobody's being shot here. But you know, anger is a very good feeling and a very justified feeling. I think the restraint on anger and kind of restraint on frustration and this notion like, oh, those people cannot speak, you know, those artists, for example, they cannot speak because they cannot speak objectively, because you know they're hurt and they're angry. What is the notion of being objective again? You know, you can be objective only if you're like really, really far away from whatever situation you're looking at. Probably personally not connected and not involved, only then you can be objective. So again, we're talking about this idea created in a Western knowledge system that things are happening elsewhere, which is true through the history of the collective West. Things were happening elsewhere. The people who had power were observing from the far position, zero-point position, it's called, by one of the South American philosophers. So having a zero-point position, so where I sit is a zero-point, and everything else, all the other measurement systems, you know, are being built around me and all those people far away, they're elsewhere, and, you know, only I sit here in a zero-point position and I hold the objective rule. The Ukrainian artist who is speaking in, I don't know, in Vienna, while her friends or her family are probably being, you know, under immense danger somewhere you know in ukraine i mean this is an illusion it's not going to happen but is that a reason how is it possible to diminish or you know to to depreciate the experience and knowledge and voice and the validity of this person although the person should be angry but another thing which is interesting i was listening to you now about the question of european art you know i would even go one step further and i would ask why is it important whether ukrainian art is european art or not because what is European art? What does it stand on? You know, is it defined by geographical, physical boundaries of Europe or by European Union? Artists from different diasporas that live in Europe, you know, from African diasporas, from South American, Asian diasporas, from Eastern European diasporas, what they do, is it European art or not? Or is the whole question of European art comes that European art is a canon because that's how we know art history and that's what sort of usual consumer of art used to see, okay, this is 
the very straightly narrated history of art, which is basically a European. And around it, sometimes something else happens. I assume that the, the core of the question is basically whether the sphere of art is European actually means, is this something I have to pay attention to? And I'm not yeah, putting it sure. very simple because I want to demean these people. This is a question that pops up in my mind every day when I see a news headline or an article. Is this something I have to devote energy to? I don't think there's a good enough answer to a private person, but we are, in terms of also your article and argument, we are talking about high stakes institutions, international communities and relations and in some part, we are talking about financing, about employment, about being exhibited, which is, after all, not just a means of artistic success, but let's be frank, that's also a means of core survival. Yeah, the core survival of artists in different parts of Europe with the pandemic and after pandemic went under such a stress and such a question. Nowadays, I wouldn't necessarily hold European institutions and financial background of artistic lives as any kind of standard. I think the standard has been heavily shaken by the last couple of years. I mean, if we're talking about the artistic life in Europe. Another thing which I was thinking now as we talk is that in any case, the foundation for institutions and foundations for economic systems is still values, right? I mean, we build institutions and we create the economic relations between them and, you know, above them based on what we believe value-wise. And the paradox of what I'm seeing today is that, you know, when Ukraine was fighting on Maidan or like multiple Maidans in 2013-14, there was a fight for values. And this notion of revolution of dignity, which was coined then and survived all this time, was coined towards the idea that this fight for European future, right? I mean, Maidan started from the refusal of then president of Ukraine to step into the association agreement, not even membership agreement, but far away association agreement. And this public fury that that's not our choice because Europe as European Union for Ukraine then stood for values, for dignity, for respect, for human rights, for rule of law, and the whole Maidan and everything which came afterwards, and also all the social changes, which also allowed Ukraine not to lose in three days in February last year and still be fighting and resisting. That's a lot based in this belief that um, European Union, which is our future, where we can culturally and politically and geographically belong, this is a Europe of values, of respect and dignity and human rights. But what's happening in this last year, I think the vision from inside Ukraine, but I think not only from inside Ukraine, the European Union is a union of values, is crumbling, which brings me to the question, what's going to be left of the idea of European Union and Europe as something based on values? And whether the war in Ukraine, when it ends with a victory, of course, whether it will be a hugely important step of reimagining, revaluing what European Union is, as a collective entity and also as something important for all its members. Well, if you're only talking about indicators, even before the escalation last February, we have seen incredibly varied responses from governments and from private citizens across the European Union. For me, an initial important bookmark 
has been how conflict avoidant many of the greater powers have been in contrast with, say, the Baltic countries who have been attentive and basically ringing the alarm bells when Ukraine didn't seem like it's being listened to. In terms of being listened to, let's talk just a few words at least about this fantastic and beautifully written article of yours from last year, which still makes me tear up when I read through it. I know that's not your core intention, but still. By the title Defied by Silence, again, the link is down in the show notes and I advise all the listeners to read this one. Also featuring a lot of artwork that you selected. And this, when talking about the first couple of months of Ukrainian art under the full-scale attacks, you say that silence is an important quality of the artist's life. I think it has, to me at least, from a very comfortable perspective as an observer, it seems to have changed. Nevertheless, this was the defining feature that you identified back then. Do you think it has changed or is it just a superficial impression? I think many things changed since that article was written and I would wanted to shortly comment on your reaction to the article. You know, it's tears or strong emotions are not what I mean when I write what I write, but I must say that I highly appreciate the strong emotions that come out of you reading what I write and other people because I hear it quite often because I think that's a very humane and very human and very true reaction and emotion and as long as we are brave enough which is funny to say right we're brave enough to express it that also keeps us true and you know not the human machines with a allegedly objective point of view as long as you can have tears when you read something or look at something you cannot be objective and i think that's a very good thing coming back to silence um one of the thing of what's connected to the notion of the european art we discussed before which was also theorized in different writing, is the choices. As an artist, when I decide to depict something, to show something, to talk about something, it means by default that something else is left in silence. I frame my vision into this topic and the other topics by default stay in silence, whether it's a conscious choice or not really conscious choice. What the word changed very much And it was already there when this article was written and published, but it's much, much stronger and more obvious now, is that being inside the war takes the choice away. I don't mean it as agency taking away sign. It's not somebody took away your choice. But the situation of being inside the war brings the understanding that the choice is not possible. It's an inner decision that whenever I show something, I talk about something as an artist, as a writer. I sort of have to show as much as I can every day. And I started to write then in April shortly, which basically became an important part of what Ukrainian artists are doing ever since until now. Artistic practice as a daily experience is basically keeping a diary. By keeping a diary, almost nothing can be left outside of it. So this is an inner compulsion and sort of a need to constantly talk about everything which is happening every day, which for me also a sign of a very important, I would say, sign of our times, which is relevant not only to Ukraine, but to Ukraine nowadays, absolutely. It's the simultaneity that the former 
notion, the, the different problems and different issues that can be sort of prioritized and putting, you know, into hierarchy. And, you know, today I resolve this and tomorrow I resolve this. And, you know, in three days I can talk about this. This notion is not livable anymore because important problems and big issues are happening at the same time as we talk about it, as we leave them every day. And they're all pressing and they're all important. We have to start learning the simultaneity of events happening in our lives. And I think Ukrainian artists are testing it, trying it, living it and showing it also. Thank you for your time. I'm so happy we actually got to talk with each other. Maybe in a few more years, I'll even get to see you in person for the first time. You know, we can set the limit a bit closer. We don't have to wait <laughs> a few years. Who knows? <laughs> if we really want it. Yeah, well, judging from the publishing relationship we have had for a couple of years, leading to a conversation, this would mean that we keep publishing you for quite some time. <laughs> so I'm really looking forward to that. I'll be very happy. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you for invitation. It was a pleasure. You've been listening to Gogolin, the Eurozine podcast with Katerina Botanova. And if you want more, you can listen to bonus material available exclusively for patrons. Visit our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Should you be a benevolent billionaire or a philanthropic institution wishing to help a quality online magazine sustain its work for a European public sphere, or just want to communicate directly, you can find all the relevant information at eurozine.com support. Please subscribe to the podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a review so more people can find us. You can also subscribe to our weekly newsletter so you'll always know what's worth thinking about. Gogorin, the Eurozine podcast, is produced by Elias Neuberger. The production is supported by the European Culture Foundation. I've been Editor-in-Chief Reka Kinga Pop, and I hope you've enjoyed the program.